uh, the things that the Lord has done, I think, even this week, I've heard from a number of you, not only something that you've learned or a new commitment that you've made, but even at camp, some things where conflicts were resolved and some things that were wrong were put right. And uh, that's the uh, greatest thing any speaker or minister can hope for, is that uh, people of God will use uh, that. So you really ought to give yourself a round of applause for being such eager listeners to the Word of God and so ready to put it into practice. And maybe at this time in our history as a presbytery, it's uh, just that more useful as we're thinking in new ways about how we can manifest the common life that we have in Jesus Christ as Orthodox Presbyterians in Southern California. And as we start pulling things together, these will be tools that we can use, even if you never end up having to actually administer this kind of church discipline for someone else, if you've caught a new glimpse for the love that you ought to have for one another and the desire to be with one another and encourage and help one another, then uh, that will be great. Well, we get to end on a real upbeat note because we're going to talk now in our last lesson about uh, our readiness to restore and receive. We've been talking all week about the hope that God holds before us as we practice church discipline, and I hope that it will change your attitude, your perspective on church discipline, as well as your willingness to practice it. Because as I said in the introduction, one of the reasons I believe that people are reluctant to use church discipline, and sometimes they even express it, is that they really don't think church discipline will work. They've seen many cases when it didn't seem to work, and haven't seen very many or haven't heard of very many where it, it did just exactly what they were looking for, changing a life and restoring a person to a fruitful fellowship in the body of Christ. And because they don't think it'll work, they get about what they expect. Uh, it doesn't work, or doesn't work in the way that they would like. But the Bible tells us that church discipline always accomplishes God's purposes for it. It will always glorify Jesus Christ. It will always make him happy. And if it doesn't do anything else, that's good enough. Because what we want to do more than anything else is make our Lord who bought us happy. And if we can please him, that will be wonderful. But it does purify the church. It does unify the church, not in word only, but in deed and in truth. And many, many times it reclaims the offender who is or has become a child of God through the whole process of church discipline. So we should be filled with faith filled with confidence and the boldness that flows from that confidence when we think about the use of church discipline one-on-one -on -one or two or three-on-one -on -one or as sessions and churches together. In all of its forms, it is a blessed gift that God has given to his people, and it is a privilege and a treasure that we have by his grace. And I hope you've gotten that in mind, as I said at the beginning. If you take nothing from this conference but that, that will be worth the time that we've spent together in it. And the way God encourages us that it works as we look at this last lesson together is by showing us one example of a successful recovery, first of a church and then of an individual believer. And it took place at Corinth. And so we want to look at 2 Corinthians, first of all in chapter 7 and then in chapter 2, to see the way in which our good shepherd, Jesus, restored his sheep at Corinth, the church, and then through them restored the offending brother. Just to remind you, and we just looked briefly at the passage last hour, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and following, Paul had commanded the church to discipline this offending brother who was guilty of adultery and incest. 
He told the church to put him out of the church and told them to hand him over to Satan. Indeed, Paul himself passed that judgment and uh, instituted that censure. And uh, then he sent the letter off, wondering just what would be the outcome. Would they listen? Would they balk? Would they stall? Or would they carry through with his exhortations? And he was, re he was joyful to hear uh, by return mail or by return news that the church had responded to his exhortation. And that's what he talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So if you'll turn there first of all, as we think about the fact that Christ restores his erring church, first of all, through the discipline of the Apostle Paul. Paul writes, beginning in verse 2, Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. But when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest. But we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcasts, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it is not on account of the one who did the wrong or of the injured party but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. Paul approached Corinth as he moved through Macedonia, fearful over the uncertainty that he had concerning the response of the Corinthians. There had been enough said and done in Corinth already to make the apostle realize that he had an unruly congregation on his hands and he had taken the bull by the horns and directly confronted them in his letter concerning a number of sinful problems, not the least of which was the call that he issued to them to administer church discipline to this offending brother. And as he went through Macedonia, he told um, the Corinthians here that he had no rest because there were conflicts outside, but these fears within. How would they respond? What would they say? Would Titus come back with the news that they had finally broken with Paul and that they would not do what he had commanded? Or would he come telling them that they had lashed out again at him with new vehemence and new anger? 
Well, how he rejoiced, how his heart was encouraged, how his joy was made overflowing and full when he heard from Titus that the church had received his letter and far from distancing themselves from Paul, they had shown a new concern for Paul. Paul writes, he told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. The news that the Corinthians had received Paul's hard letter and yet loved him still and loved him more and were reaching out through Titus and the report that Titus had to embrace Paul and to draw him in gave Paul great encouragement in the midst of great trials and difficulties. Paul recognizes that discipline is always painful. Just as the Holy Spirit says in Hebrews 12 verse 11, no discipline at the time is joyful, but painful. That's just a truism. It's obvious enough that to be corrected by God's rod and staff can hurt. Discipline causes sorrow. And that's enough to keep some of us back from using it. We don't want to experience pain. We don't want to experience sorrow, and therefore we will not do anything, if we can help it, that is going to cause another or ourselves that kind of sorrow. And we can imagine Paul acting the same way. This is a new church. They're already having troubles and difficulties. They may run away from me. I might drive them off if I administer discipline. But he went ahead and he wrote his letter because he was a faithful shepherd. And those sheep needed to be confronted, needed to be rebuked, needed to be restored. And so he wrote the letter and then he waited and wondered what was going to happen. And when he heard of their sorrow, he was grieved. He didn't want to make them sorry. But when he heard of their change, he rejoiced because that sorrow had brought about repentance. There are two kinds of sorrow. And so Paul was not so concerned that he had caused them sorrow, though that was not his prime intention. At least that was not his final goal. But he did rejoice to see what the result of that sorrow was. And that ought to be an encouragement to you and I when we practice this work. It is a sorry work much of the time. But it doesn't end in sorrow if it's the right kind of sorrow. And Paul said in verse 8, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it, not ultimately. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. Discipline causes sorrow, but the right kind of sorrow causes repentance, and that brings great joy and great encouragement. Worldly sorrow, which is the wrong kind of sorrow, leads to death, Paul says in verse 10. But a godly sorrow, that is a sorrow that is wrought by God in our heart, that is the fruit of the Spirit in our heart when we are under his discipline, that godly sorrow always leads to salvation. It always leads to a turning back to the source of our life and to a new repentance, and it never leads to regret. You know, it's a sort of a bizarre thing about discipline, whether it is church discipline formally administered or just the discipline that you've experienced by the Lord's hand. As painful as it is at the time, maybe to undergo the affliction of physical ailments for a long period of time and have the Lord break you on the wheel of weakness so that you'll come to rely upon him more, or maybe a fractured relationship that then is put back together again, I have hardly ever met anybody who said, I wish that had never happened to me. They say, it was painful and it was hell to go through, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. I don't regret it a bit. 
Because where I am now, having been disciplined by the Lord, is so much farther along than I ever would have been without that, that the sorrow was worth it because of the result in a changed life and in a new experience of salvation. And so it was for the Corinthians. That sorrow that they experienced when they read Paul's rebuking letter led to repentance. And so he did not have to, and so it ultimately did no harm to them. Their sorrow brought about the kind of change that yielded many fruits, including the proper exercise of church discipline. As he says in verse 11, look what this godly sorrow produced in you. What earnestness. There was a new zeal for God's work in the church, including discipline. What alarm. They finally began to be concerned about what Jesus Christ was concerned about. What longing to see that brother restored. What concern. What readiness to see justice done. They wanted to do the right thing. And so God gave them that desire of their heart, and they did the right thing. They handed that brother over to Satan. They put him out of the church. And as a result, God was pleased and God worked through that exercise of discipline, both in their lives and in the life of the offending brother. And Paul is refreshed and encouraged and overjoyed that he can now have full confidence in those brothers and sisters there at that church. As he says in verses 13 and following, By all this we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was, because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I have boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. You know, the Apostle John, in many fewer words, said, I have no greater joy than this, than to see my children walking in the truth. And Paul, in effect, is saying the same thing. I told Titus, when you get to Corinth, they'll have it straightened out. And I was not ashamed in my boasting in you. And now Titus has gone, and he has been refreshed and encouraged by seeing your affection and the thriving Christianity that is at work in your midst. You know, to live in a church without discipline is like living in a dry and barren place where there is no refreshment and no joy. But living in a church that disciplines itself personally and corporately, though it does create temporary sorrow, is like living in an oasis where there is life and refreshment and joy. And it is a refreshment to everyone who enters in. People who come to our churches when we are thriving with this kind of common life that heals wounds and restores relationships and provokes one another to love and good works can tell the minute they walk in that although the church is not a comfortable place to be when that kind of stuff is going on, it's the right place to be because God is in the midst of her and God is doing his transforming, saving work. And when Titus visited Corinth, he said, this is a different church. This isn't like the church that you wrote to when you wrote 1 Corinthians. These are new people. They have now become an oasis of refreshment and encouragement to us all. Discipline is hard work. It's tough work. It takes a lot of love, and it takes a lot of discipline ourselves to administer it properly. And our flesh cries out against it. That old man that continues to infect our lives wants to do it some other way because it's so hard. But 
God is in it as a work, and he will bless it. And it becomes the way to new joy, new refreshment, new strength, and new life for the church. And because God had blessed Paul's discipline in restoring the church, then the church becomes the means by which that offending brother mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5 is himself restored. And that we read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 5. You see, one of the manifestations of the Corinthian repentance was dealing properly with that offending brother. Paul had commanded that he put, be put out, and they put him out, and now that discipline has led to repentance in the brother. And so Paul has the opportunity to command and encourage the church concerning restoration and recovery. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you, to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive every, anyone, I forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there is anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Paul calls the church now to restore this brother. And we need to learn as carefully about restoration as we need to learn about the proper administration of, di uh, of discipline because, you know, restoration properly done doesn't come any more naturally to sinners than does discipline. We've emphasized the things that get in our way of administering discipline, but we need to also realize that there are things that can get in the way of restoring one who has repented and recovering them for fruitful ministry within the body of Christ. We are sadly, as sinners, sort of reactionary. We will swing from one extreme to the other. We either neglect discipline and let anything go, or else we come back and we hammer on people and never forgive, never receive, no matter how repentant they might be. And both extremes are very, very dangerous. So Paul calls upon the church to do really three things. There are three specific commands that he gives to the church as he calls them to restore this brother. And the first is in verse 7. Forgive him. Forgive him. Forgiveness is a promise that we make, a promise that we must keep. And as Adams has pointed out, it is a promise not to bring the matter up to ourselves or to other people, but most of all to God. It doesn't mean that we all of a sudden get amnesia and we can't remember anymore what the problem was or what the sin was or what the difficulty was, but we say, I will not lay it to your account anymore in my own heart as I think about you or in the hearts of others as I talk about you and to you in the presence of others, but most of all, I will not blame you before God anymore for what you have done. And that promise becomes the foundation of the work of forgiveness which is to keep that promise. Oh, Satan is there to sow the reminders. And sometimes people think until they've forgotten what happened, they can't really forgive what happens. That's what we mean by that cliche, time heals all wounds. It doesn't. 
But the idea is, if enough time passes so that I can't remember what happened anymore, then there won't be any problem anymore. But that just doesn't happen. Forgiveness, a promise kept faithfully day after day after day, as a matter of fact, leads to the forgetfulness. I have heard people say, when talking about very serious life-damaging sins or marriage-damaging sins, I'll forgive, but I'm never going to be able to forget. And then come back as quick as six months later and say, you know, I really can hardly remember anymore what has happened because for six months they've kept the promise to forgive, to forgive, to forgive. And every time the evil one has come sowing his bitter memories, his bitter regrets, they have brought those regrets, those memories back to the cross again so that they might not be held up before God or before others or before themselves. And as we administer discipline and then as elders call upon congregations to forgive and restore a person, oftentimes we need to teach the people of God how to forgive how to make the promise of forgiveness, and then how to keep it consistently when Satan tries to overcome that work by sowing leftover discord and hurt and disappointment. It's hard for congregations to learn how to really forgive in a consistent way, and they need to be taught that, and that's why Paul commands, forgive him. The second command is in verse 7 as well, comfort him. The word there is parakaleo, same one that we get the word paraclete, helper, comforter from. And for the same reason that it applies so wonderfully to the Holy Spirit, it needs to apply to the people of the Spirit, the fellowship of the Spirit. It means to help. It means to come alongside, to render assistance. And that might be the help of comfort. It might be the help of encouragement. It might be the physical help of holding someone accountable and helping them structure their lives so that they don't fall back into the own sin, or their own sin. It can mean lots of things. Counseling, comforting, smoothing the way back into the fellowship of the church. But it's something that we need to do. As the Spirit of Christ, the paraclete, the comforter, ministers in the midst of the church, his people are helpers to those who need to find their way back. Sometimes that means helping a brother who is restored or a sister who is restored find a new way back into their own ministry and the use of their gifts in the church. Far from holding them off or putting them someplace on a shelf where they won't be an embarrassment to anyone, we need to be able to find a way for them to exercise their new fruitfulness that grows out of repentance. Sometimes it might need physical help. Sometimes it might include financial help. Whatever it takes, Paul says, Comfort, help, bring that brother back and let him be at home again. And then the third command comes in verse 8. Reaffirm your love for him. When someone has been disciplined, especially when they've been put out of the church, but also if they repent after having been suspended or repent after having been admonished or rebuked, there needs to be a formal reception by the church and by its elders. There needs to be a clearing of the record. It needs to be just as sure in the sight of God and man that this person has repented and is restored as it needed to be made sure and certain that they were disciplined because of their unbelief. Therefore, sessions need to enter on their minutes in detail with clarity what has happened when a person has been brought to repentance and what the church declares concerning their status forevermore so that anyone who wants to look can find it recorded in the court of Jesus Christ, this brother is home again and free. 
And that's so important because oftentimes discipline works fine until it comes to tying up all the loose ends. And then sometimes even for the good reason of being so overjoyed that somebody is, is back, we overlook taking the time and being careful about clearing the records and tying up the loose ends. There needs to be a reaffirmation of our love for the brother through a restoration of privilege. You see, when we talk about punishment in connection with church discipline, we're not talking about punishment in the sense that the civil magistrate talks about punishment. What you do when you're punished by the magistrate is you pay back. You make it right by restitution. But the punishment inflicted by the church really is a deprivation. It is taking something away which must be given back once repentance takes place. There must be a restoration. That's what the father did when the prodigal returned. He made it clear to the whole household, to the whole family, that this son who was lost is now found. This son who was dead is now alive, and he's no longer a part of the household as a slave, as a servant, but he will be a son. And one of the great joys that comes as a result of discipline properly done is being able to reaffirm our love for our brothers and sisters as they come back again. And I don't think it's stretching it to say that the church ought to have a party, too, when the wandering one comes home. That part of our reaffirmation of our love for him and part of our thanksgiving to God for his great grace in making the whole process work should be to celebrate and dance and sing in the presence of God and to eat and drink around his table again, restoring the fullness of that fellowship so that every breach that was there before can be healed and restored and brought back together. That party that uh, the father had in the parable of the prodigal son, you know, did smoke out an unforgiving older brother, did show that sometimes the sin of the 90 and 9 is that they're not willing to take the wandering one back again. And it's not impossible that the very culmination of one process of discipline might institute another process of discipline when you find those in the congregation who for one reason or another are not willing to forgive, not willing to restore, not willing to reaffirm their love, and must themselves become the object of shepherding pastoral care to restore them in a way that that elder brother was not restored because of his sin and his hardness of heart. So forgiveness and restoration is what it's all about, my friends. We do these things that are painful and sorrowful so that we might enter into the joy of our Heavenly Father who with his angels rejoices whenever a sinner repents and comes back to God. We forgive them, we restore them, and that restoration, that forgiveness, has the same divine warrant that the discipline did. In verse 10, Paul says, If you forgive anyone, I forgive him. And although he doesn't say it in exactly those words, he goes on to say, And what I have forgiven, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. What I have forgiven, Christ has forgiven by his authority. Again, the action of the church in forgiving and restoring reflects the divine action of our Lord and Shepherd King. And that's how we beat the devil when he seeks to divide and destroy and tear apart the flock of God. Paul says we're not unaware of Satan's wiles, his schemes, 
He'll try to outwit us, but we'll beat him by following through on this procedure. He wants us divided from one another because any one of us by ourselves is no match for him. And though he knows his doom is sure, he wants for all he can to tear the church of Jesus Christ to pieces, if he can, before Judgment Day. That's his desire. All his plans and schemes are aimed in that direction, but he cannot do it because the good shepherd of the sheep never loses a lamb. He always draws his children back and puts them in a position it is, that is greater and more wonderful and more satisfying than it ever was before. So we can beat him. We know how he operates. We can think back over this week's lessons and we can see the way he will get at us to try and keep us back from exercising this kind of shepherding care, this kind of restorative discipline towards one another in a church. Those of you who are elders can think of the ways in which Satan uniquely tempts sessions to keep back from doing this work for fear of men, for fear of disruption, for fear of driving people away. But because we know his schemes, because we know the promise of God, we realize that proper discipline blessed by the Spirit of God, ordered by the Word of Christ, will bring restoration. And it will be itself an assault against hell and the gates of hell. Jesus said he was going to build his church upon the rock of the confession that he is the Christ. And even hell itself will not be able to withstand the onslaught. And as Satan seeks to drag the people of God towards his lair there in hell, we storm the gates of hell and bring them back one by one as we practice this kind of discipline. That verse that I cited earlier in this lesson, Hebrews 12:11, says that no discipline at the time is enjoyable but sorrowful. But then it goes on to say, but for those who have been trained by it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you love his church? Do you love the purity of that church? Do you love the unity of that church? Do you love the peace of that church? And Jesus tells you how you and I can manifest that love for him and for his people as we practice restorative discipline within the body of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we close this week of lessons together, we see ourselves in this room as in one place, with one mind, agreeing together as we ask you to touch us with your loving heart that we might overcome the schemes of the devil who would hold us back, who would pervert the meaning of words like love and peace and unity and caring into something that will ensure that we will let one another go. Teach us what it means to love. Teach us what it means to believe. Teach us what it means to hope as you do so that we might practice this discipline, this care, among ourselves, one-to-one -one as brothers and sisters in Christ, and when necessary, twos and threes, when necessary as sessions and congregations, that we might see all along the way you seeking and saving that which is lost and that which is wandering. Lord, for us to come into the church only to taste of the good things of the kingdom of God and then to forsake it and abandon it because of our own sin, what good is that except to make us twice the children of hell as we were before? But to come and stay 
to come and be at home, to come and be restored even when we wander and stray. That is the life of the people of God, and that is the joy and the refreshment that we are seeking. Thank you for your word, for the richness of it. Thank you that it tells us not only what we should do, but how we should do it, and why we should do it as it examines our hearts. We pray that we would take from this week together a new determination to devote ourselves to the love of Christ by studying the peace and the purity and the unity of the church, not in word, but in deed and in truth. We do thank you so much, O Lord, for this week and for the many ways in which our common life has come to expression. We pray that the good things that we have had in our communion together with you and one another this week would begin to spread and that we would begin to influence and direct our brothers and churches in our own local congregations and as elders in our presbytery until this whole presbytery of Southern California becomes known as a place where restoration and healing takes place. O God, may they ride upon the doors of our church restorer of broken walls, rebuilder of ancient foundations. And may the praise and the glory and the honor be Jesus alone, who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. I'd like us to close by singing a chorus that maybe you don't know, maybe you do know, but uh, it's, I think, especially appropriate to... Uh, what we've been talking about this week, it's called Bind Us Together, and I've asked uh, if Dinka would sing it with uh, Barbara while they, she plays through it. These are the words, but uh, you're going to have to follow because i got a lot of little uh, ditto marks and stuff in here. How many of you have ever sung it before? Okay, a few, so you can... I don't know whether you can...